Almighty God, you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your Son, Christ our Lord. Give us grace so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those ineffable joys which you have prepared for those who truly love you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God in glory everlasting. Amen. Welcome back. Um, We are in the epistle to the Ephesians, so if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll take a look at verses 1 through 3, which is probably all we are going to get through today. Surprise, surprise. But a rich section of the epistle to the Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and read through these verses, and then we'll come back and look at them in closer detail. Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may recall that last week we looked at Paul's great prayer here in Ephesians. In the first part of this epistle, he talks about doctrine, and there's a great deal of doctrine there in that first part of Ephesians. But then Paul begins to move on, and this is generally Paul's custom, you'll see it in his epistles, that he moves from doctrine to practice. In other words, theology is not just this ethereal thing. It's not just a set of beliefs. It's not simply believing in, it is believing on. And so Paul moves from that which is very doctrinal to that which is very practical, and we see him doing that here in this passage. That's why he moves from these great doctrines of election and the doctrines about the person and work of Jesus Christ to praying for the church, for praying specifically for believers. And we looked at that prayer. And just briefly, let's go ahead and review the elements of that prayer because it sets the stage for what is to follow. Remember, Paul was writing a letter here. So one thought flows into the next thought. Now, in order for us to sort of break it down and understand it, we divide it up. We even divide it up into chapters, but that's not the way it was originally in Paul's letters. So he moves from all of this doctrine immediately into prayer and prayer, doxology into praise, and from praise then into practical application. So what was Paul's prayer for the church? After we talked about all these doctrines, what was he asking God to do on behalf of the church? Well, first of all, he said that Paul was praying for believers. That's one of the unique features of here in Ephesians. Uh, there are times when you and I pray for others. We pray sometimes for unbelievers that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray oftentimes for those in authority over The Scripture commands us in the New Testament to pray for those who are in civic authority over us, for our presidents and for governors and for the members of the Supreme Court, because those people have been placed in their positions by God. That's what the Scripture says. Now, you might say to ourselves, well, surely not some of those people. But but the reality is the offices that they hold have been placed there by God. And so we pray for them. We are commanded to do so, and we do so as part of our liturgy on a weekly basis. But Paul is praying here specifically for believers, and one of the aspects of his prayer is a boldness. 
Uh, Paul comes before the Lord and he asks for some extraordinary things. And one of the reasons why Paul can pray so boldly is precisely because he is praying for believers. And he knows that God wants to prosper believers. He wants to bless believers. He wants to build them up for the work of ministry. And so Paul, when he prays, he is simply asking for the things that he knows God is already going to grant. What does he pray for specifically? Well, he prays specifically for their strengthening. He prays that they may be strengthened. But he doesn't simply mean that they may be strengthened physically. Paul says that they may be strengthened in their inner being. Why does Paul pray that believers might be strengthened in their inner being? We all need physical strength. You know, sometimes we are told in our culture that if you have your health, you have everything. And if you don't have your health, you have nothing. That's what we're sometimes taught, but it simply isn't true. Now, don't get me wrong, physical health and well-being is a tremendous blessing, but it is not everything. It is possible to gain the whole world but lose your soul in the process. And it is the soul which is eternal. So Paul doesn't pray necessarily that we might be strengthened physically, although that is important, but he prays that we might be strengthened in our physical but as well as our spiritual being. Why does Paul pray for our inner being? I think one of the reasons why Paul prays for our inner being is because Paul knows the challenges that we face as Christians and the difficulties that we face. He knows that being a Christian is not easy. Anybody that tells you that it is is simply lying to you. Jesus said, if you want to be one of my followers, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And nobody more than Paul understood that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes through a catalog of the things that he had suffered as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I just want to read them out to you briefly. He says, I have been through greater labors, far more imprisonments. I have endured countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles. I've been in danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, there's not a person here in this room, I think, that has endured the sort of things that the Apostle Paul has endured for his faith. But Paul makes it very clear the time is coming, perhaps it is already beginning. It certainly is taking place in many other parts of the world where this kind of suffering for the sake of Christ will be part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Paul knew that. Paul understood very well that being a Christian involves sacrifice. Now, this is a hard message for us to hear as affluent people because we have a tendency to think that we're persecuted for our faith. I want you to understand there is nobody here in this room, including the rector, who has actually been persecuted for their faith. We have, from time to time, been inconvenienced as a consequence of our faith. But none of us have actually endured what the Apostle Paul endured here in 2 Corinthians. But Paul says the time is coming. Jesus said in the last days there will become times of great travail, great difficulty. 
And knowing that, Paul prays that the believers might be strengthened in their inner being, not just physically, but we might have the fortitude, the courage, the moral courage, not alone the physical courage, but the moral courage to stand strong. He not only prays that believers might be strengthened in their inner being, that is, you and me strengthened in our inner being, but he prays that we might be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we said last week that in John's Gospel, the word that is translated for spirit is the word parakletos, paraclete. It means one who comes alongside to help and to assist. Paul realizes that to be strengthened in our inner being requires that we be strengthened by a divine power. The very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the kind of power that you and I are going to need, not only to stand tall, but to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. It's one thing to endure and to survive. It's another thing to be victorious. And so Paul prays specifically that we might be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. He prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Not just that Christ may take up residence in our hearts, but that Christ may begin to renovate our lives. Those of you who have renovated houses know how this works. You have to renovate room by room. It is a long process. That's what Paul is talking about. It's the doctrine of sanctification. Justification is an instantaneous thing. God declares us righteous on the basis of our faith in what Jesus Christ has done. But the process of making us into the very thing that he's declared us to be, that is a process. And so that is exactly what Paul is praying, that God and the person of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would take up residence in our hearts, in our lives, and begin this process of renovating us. Habit by habit, room by room. He prays that we may be rooted and grounded in love. Paul understood very well that if we don't have love, it doesn't matter what else we have. Isn't that what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? But if I have the faith to move mountains, but do not have love, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, what am I but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal? What a wonderful expression. Who likes noisy gongs and clanging cymbals? Paul says that's what we are. He says, now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is what? It is love. And it is not this kind of sentimental love that the world talks about today. A second-hand emotion. Something that we fall into or we fall out of simply by chance or by accident. That's not the kind of love that Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about the love that you find in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It's agape. It is a self-sacrificing, self-emptying kind of love. That is the love that has the ability to transform the world. And Paul understood that if we have all the faith in the world, if we have all the hope in the world, but you and I are not a people who show love for one another, love and concern for another before ourselves, it makes no difference whatsoever. See, that's the kind of love that Jesus Christ had for us, who though he was rich, he made himself what? Poor. Though he was in very nature equal with God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He let it go, and he came down, and he took the form of a servant. Now, that is love. 
That's what Paul wants us to be, rooted and grounded in love. And I love the, the expression, rooted and grounded. Those are agricultural terms. Jesus, on one occasion in John's Gospel, said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, because apart from me, what? You can do how much? A little bit. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cut a limb off of the main branch, and what happens to the limb? It perishes. It withers. It dies. And so Paul is praying that you and I might be grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ, the living vine, and that we might produce fruit. And then finally, he says this, and I think this is in many respects the most wonderful request of all, that we may comprehend the fullness of Christ's love. He doesn't just want us to partake of the love of Christ. He wants us to partake of the fullness of it. Now you think about that for a moment. The old hymn says, there is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. How in the world can you and I comprehend the fullness of Christ's love? Well, the honest answer is there's no way for us to do that. The only way it can be done is if God pours that into our minds, into our hearts, into our souls, the fullness of his love. I think also what Paul means here is the nature of God's love for us, the love for the unlovable. What he says in Romans chapter 5 is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about that for a minute. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did Christ die for us? When we managed to get our act together. No. When we managed to clean up our lives. No. When we managed to break and give up those old habits. Is that when Christ died for us? No. Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. He died for us. Which is to say, Christ loves, not because we're lovable, but in spite of the fact that we are not. Now, that's not the way we operate. We oftentimes love people when they're lovable. You know, from time to time, my wife will say, I love you, but I don't like you right now. <laughs> and we've all been there, and you all understand how that works. Well, that's a little taste of the kind of love that we're talking about here. God loves us in spite of the fact that you and I, according to the Scriptures, are not necessarily lovable or likable people. And when you begin to realize that, it begins to change your whole outlook. Your attitude towards Jesus Christ begins to change. You begin to fall in love with Him. One of the reasons I love my wife is the fact that she loves me when I'm not likable. That's an extraordinary thing, you see. And Paul prays that we may understand that, that is how God loves us. So that's the prayer that Paul prays. But as I said, this is a letter, and one thought flows into the next. And we have to ask ourselves, well, if Paul is praying this prayer, why is he praying this prayer? There's a purpose behind it. What, what is the purpose? Well, one, someone might say, well, the purpose is that we might be joyful Christians. After all, that's what God wants us to be. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. God wants us to be happy. Well, first of all, you need to understand there's a big difference between happiness and joyfulness. They are not necessarily the same thing. I think I've said this to you before, but if you have never heard it, let me make it very clear. God is not 
concerned with your happiness. Now, we have a hard time with that because we think we are entitled to happiness. It's drilled into us. And we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of we're entitled to it. By golly, I have a right to be happy. And if I'm not happy with you, I'll move on and find somebody else with whom I am happy. That's the way we operate. God is not concerned with our happiness. God is concerned with our holiness, our Christ-likeness. And we're going to see this fleshed out here in just a moment. What Christ wants for us is that we might be joyful. We might be joyful, Christians, Happiness is contingent upon your circumstances. If you buy a lottery ticket, and you're living in Simpsonville, South Carolina, and, and you buy a lottery ticket and you hit, oh, you're happy. <laughs> and yet it's, it's interesting to note that most of the people that hit the lottery, within 10 years, they're bankrupt. And that's because all of the money in the world can't buy happiness. But you can have joy and have absolutely nothing at all. The Apostle Paul was one of the most joyful people in the world, and yet he had nothing. Jesus, certainly, that was one of the things that attracted people to Jesus. They could not help but be drawn to him, in spite of the fact that the Son of Man did not even have a place to lay his head. He said, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man does not even have a place to lay his head, and yet Jesus was joyful. So yes, Paul does want us to be joyful, but it's more than that. Paul is praying all of these things for us, that we might be strengthened in our inner being, that we might be encouraged by the Holy Spirit, that God might dwell in our hearts, that we might be grounded in love, that we might comprehend the fullness of Christ. Why? Because we have a job to do. And that's why Paul goes from praying there in Ephesians chapter 3, to talking about our calling in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That is to say, Paul is praying these things for us because, as I said, we, you, me, St. Philip's, we have a job to do in the world. That's why Paul is praying this for us. It's not just that we might be joyful, it's that we might be joyful, that we might be effective. That's what God wants for us, to live a life worthy of your calling. Now, some older translations sometimes say that you may live a life worthy of your vocation. If you're reading from the King James Version, sometimes it says worthy of your vocation. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Um, as a matter of fact, the word vocation comes from the Latin vocari. It's a verb which means to call. So there's nothing wrong with the word vocation, but I think this is a better rendering. For the simple reason that when we think of a vocation today, we think of a vocation as something which we choose, don't we? When you go up to somebody, a, a college student, you say, well, what are you going to do with your life? And they say, well, I think I might go into the law. Or I think I might go into education. What's your vocation? I think I'm going to go into medicine. In other words, it's something that we choose for ourselves. 
But that's not what Paul means here. Paul is not talking about something that we choose for ourselves. Paul talks about something that has been chosen for us. That's why this is a better translation, a calling. We didn't choose this life as Christians. Why didn't we choose it? Paul's already fleshed it out. Remember that Paul is building his argument. This is a letter. And what does he say in Ephesians chapter 2? As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Brian's going to quote it in the, in the sermon today. You are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Well, how much good can a dead person do? You've been here. You've heard this before. How much good can a dead person do? Nothing. Because they're what? They're dead. Okay, you're with me. There is nothing that a dead person can do, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us what? Alive, even when we were dead. So God has raised us. He is the one who has done the work, and He has called us. And He has called us to a very specific task. When we began this study of Ephesians, I pointed out to you that Ephesians is in many respects, it's a brief letter compared to some of Paul's other letters, but it is a letter that is packed full of doctrine and theology. It's a mini-course in theology. We hear about the doctrine of the Trinity in the first three chapters of this epistle. We hear about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We hear about the doctrine of election and predestination and new birth. All of these things are there in those first three chapters. But we said that this is an epistle that is a mini-course in theology centered on what? The church. That was the mystery, Paul says, that had been hidden in ages past but has now been revealed to the initiated. That what? The church is the new Israel. The church is God's instrument for change and for transformation in the culture. What God is doing is He is bringing the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And the instrument that He is using to do that is what? It is the church. Well, the word that is translated church is the Greek word ekklesia. It literally means called out ones. So if you're a member of the church, and by the church I don't mean a parish, I mean the one holy Catholic and apostolic church we profess a belief in every Sunday. If you are a churchman or a churchwoman, if you are a member of the church, then you have been called out. So that's why Paul says, I'm praying that you may live a life worthy of your calling. Now that raises the next question. What does it mean to be called out? If we're Christians, what does it mean that we've been called out? Well, it means two things in particular. First of all, it means that we've been called out from something. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you've been raised to a new life. Peter puts it this way in his first epistle. He says, you have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does it mean to be in darkness? What were we in darkness about that God has called us out of? Well, first of all, darkness about ourselves. Oftentimes we don't recognize that we are what? That we are sinners. That we have rebelled against God that we are at war with God. But when the gospel is proclaimed to us and we begin to see who we really are in the light of eternity, like Jean Valjean, when we pull back the curtain as in the portrait or the picture of Dorian Gray, and we see ourselves not as we imagine ourselves to be, but as we really are, all of a sudden we begin to see the light of Christ in an entirely different way. 
So to be called out means to be called out about darkness about ourselves. It means to be called out of darkness about God, who God is. We have a tendency oftentimes to think that God is just some sort of celestial Santa Claus who sits up there on his throne and his whole purpose is to mete out the benefits and the gifts that we ask for in our prayers. We forget that God is the Holy One of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God. We hear about His love, His mercy, His grace, His compassion, His long-suffering. But do you know that of all the adjectives that are used in the Scriptures to describe God, the one that is used more than any other is holiness. God is the Holy One. And that means that God is in a category entirely different from us. He is not only holy, H-O-L-Y, He is W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is holy other. You've heard me say this before. We have a tendency to think when it comes to holiness, there, there's God up here at the top, and then down here's the devil, and everybody else sort of falls along that scale somewhere. And then down there toward the bottom, closer to the devil and hell, you get people like you know, Adolf Hitler and Genghis Khan and, and Benito Mussolini and people like that. And you move a little bit further up, and eventually you get to the, to the, to the center portion of that scale, and that's where most people are. And hopefully, because God, we think, grades on a curve, we're above the 50% mark. That's what we're hoping for. That's where most of us are. And then you get a little bit further up there, and you begin to run into the really impressive people like Mother Teresa and, and, and Billy Graham and the clergy of St. Philip's. I always put them up there. They're way up there toward the top. And then there's God. But you see, the problem with that is that the imagery is all wrong. God is not even on the scale. He's completely in a different category, all his own. So it's not a matter of getting a passing grade. If you want to know what a passing grade is, somebody asked Jesus, how good must I be? Jesus said, how, much, how good must you be? You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh, there's a shock, isn't it? So what hope is there for you? I guarantee you there's no hope for me. See, we come to realize who God is. We come to realize who we are in relationship to God. We come to understand the world. The world says that this life is all there is. You only go around once. Grab all the gusto you can get. When you come to know Jesus Christ, when you are brought out of that darkness into light, you begin to realize that this life is fleeting, isn't it? It doesn't last forever. And all the things that the world says are going to make us happy, oftentimes when we acquire them, they don't make us any happier than we were before. William Vanderbilt, who was the heir to the famous Vanderbilt fortune, the second Vanderbilt, his father was the one that made the fortune, he in 10 years doubled the fortune. And at the point that he doubled the fortune, he was the wealthiest man in the world. Those of you who have been up to the Biltmore, you, you, you understand the wealth of the Vanderbilts. Or if you've been up to Newport and you've seen the Breakers or Marble House, you understand the enormous, vast wealth. And somebody once asked Willie, Willie K. Vanderbilt, they said, how happy has your money made me, made you? And he said, it has made me miserable. He said, to be truthful, my money has made me no happier than the fellow on the next block over whose fortune is only a fraction of my own. Money can't buy you love. Isn't that what the song says? And it cannot buy you happiness. It simply can't. When you come to the realization that you can have everything stripped away from you and still find joy, still find peace, 
That is a marvelous light. This is what is meant by amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I've been found. That's what Paul is talking about here. We've been called out, and if you're a Christian, you've come to the realization of these things. And if you've never come to the realization of these things, it may mean that you do not have that personal relationship with Christ. But we've not only been called out from something, to be called out means to be called out for something. This is what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, you've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. For you were created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works. So we have been called out from something. We've also been called out for something, for a special mission. What is that mission? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says we are Christ's ambassadors. Christ making his appeal through us. So I want you to understand, if you're a Christian this morning, if you say that you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, that means you've been called out. Called out of darkness, you now understand. You once were lost, now you've been found. You were once blind, but now you can see and you understand all of that. But do you understand you've been called out for a purpose? And what is that purpose? To be Christ's ambassadors. Now, what is an ambassador? The representative of a nation. What you do reflects on your nation if you are an ambassador, right? If you are Christ's ambassadors, you represent who? Christ. Christ. That's what you've been called for. That's the reason why you've been saved. God hasn't saved you because you're a nice person. God has saved you because he's got a job for you to do. How many of you remember that movie, Saving Private Ryan? Anybody seen Saving Private Ryan? It is a scary movie. It is a scary movie. There's no doubt about it. But it's also a powerful movie. Do you remember the, the storyline behind it? It's a fictional story, but it's actually based upon a story that actually happened during the Civil War. The, the scene begins with General George C. Marshall, who's the um, commander of the United States Army. He's the supreme commander. And he pulls in a number of officers, and he reads them a letter. And it was a letter written by Abraham Lincoln to a Mrs. Bixby, in 1864, uh, Mrs. Bixby lost all five of her sons fighting for the Union during the war. She lost all of her children, all five of them. Well, the story goes that General Marshall had learned that there was a Mrs. Ryan who had four sons, and she had lost three of them, and there was one still alive. A member of the 101st Airborne Division somewhere, operating somewhere in Europe, and he was determined not to let happen to Mrs. Ryan what had happened to Mrs. Bixby. And so he reads that letter, and then he calls these men to a special mission. And their job is to go into Europe, into the midst of this war zone, and save Private Ryan. That's the job, you see. That's the mission. Well, there is a sense in which that's our mission, too. We've been called out for a special mission. And our mission is to go into a combat zone, as it were, and to rescue those who are in danger, to rescue those who are perishing, to bring them to the knowledge of Christ that they who were walking in darkness might likewise see 
the glorious light of the gospel. And what Paul is saying is that if you're an ambassador and you are not living a life worthy of your calling, you will bring disrepute on who? On your nation. If it's the ambassadors of Christ, we are not living a life worthy of our calling, we will bring disrepute on who? Not on ourselves, but on the one we represent. And so he prays that we might live a life worthy of the calling. In other words, Paul is praying that great prayer there in the first part of Ephesians because he wants us to live worthy lives. What is the worthy life? It is the Christ-like life. A life worthy of the calling to be an ambassador to which you have been called. There's a wonderful passage in Acts chapter 11 which tells the story of the church in Antioch, Antioch of Syria, which was a remarkable church in the early days. It was the church from which the missionary era really began. And we're told that in that church there were all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles worshipped alongside. We've taken a look at this before. Blacks and whites looked, worked alongside. People of high estate worked alongside, though, of low estate. Uh, the dividing walls of hostility, as Paul describes them earlier in this epistle to the Ephesians, had come down in Antioch. And it was an extraordinary thing in the first century world. Because normally, Jews and Gentiles wanted nothing to do with each other. People of high estate wanted nothing to do with people of low estate. The educated wanted nothing to do with ignorant. There were all these dividing lines. And yet there in Antioch, an amazing thing had happened. All of these people had discovered that that which unites them, a love of Christ, was greater than anything that divided them. And they'd all come together. And what's so fascinating about that, at Acts chapter 11 says that it was there in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. For the first time, they were called Christians. Well, you say, well, what were they called before that? Most of the time they were called the followers of the way. Because Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, they said you were a follower of the way. That's how they were described. But when you get to Acts chapter 11 and that church, for the first time they're called Christians. Now what does the word Christian mean? That's what it means. It means a little Christ. In other words, what they saw, what the outside world saw in that church in Antioch were not just some nice, respectable people. What they saw were little Christs. Now, how many of you claim to be Christians this morning? Because you know where this is going. Let me see your hands if you really claim to be a Christian this morning. All right, here's the question. When people see you, do they see little Christ? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of that one. But do they see a little Christ? See, that's what it means to live a life worthy of your calling. To be little Christ. Now, if Jesus Christ transformed the world, and we have a room here of how many people would you estimate? I don't know. 100 people? 120 people? I don't know. If 120 little Christ went out in the world, what a difference it would make, don't you think? So that's what Paul is praying for, you see. That's what he wants for you and for me. He wants us to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Well, what does that look like to be Christ-like in our lives? 
Well, we are not left in any doubt as to what it is because Paul goes on to tell us. Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, first of all, with all humility, then with gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul mentions a number of things that are Christ-like characteristics, the first of which is humility. If we are going to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called, we need to live lives of humility. Now, what does it mean to live a life of humility? I'm not talking about false humility. Oh, well done this morning. Oh, it was nothing. That's false humility. You know how it is. What does it mean to really live a life of humility? Well, this goes back to what I said earlier. It means to recognize, my friends, that you and I have no rights. That's not to say that we haven't been given rights. It means, for the sake of others, we are willing to surrender those rights. Jesus said on one occasion, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, if someone comes and steals your cloak, give them your tunic as well. That, that, that's humility. We say, well, have we no rights? Jesus said you have rights, but you willingly surrender those rights. Isn't that exactly what Jesus himself did? Philippians said he was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he did what? He gave it up, and he came down, and he took the form of a what? A servant. A slave is actually what the Greek word is, doulos, bond, servant. The Declaration of Independence says we have rights. But when you become a Christ one, you follow in the footsteps of your master and you give up those rights. Let me show you how this works out, practically speaking. In the mid-20th century, there was a famous Chinese missionary. I don't mean that he was an American who went to China. I mean, he was Chinese, and he was converted. And he wrote a number of wonderful books. You can still find them online today. Uh, on Amazon and so forth. His name was Watchman Nee. Uh, he died in 1972, I think it was, a prisoner in a Chinese prison camp for his faith. He never renounced Jesus Christ. But he tells a story of what it means to be truly humble and what it means to give up your rights. It was a story about a Chinese rice farmer who had his fields up on a hillside. And just below him, there was another farm another rice farm, man had two fields, and then below him there was a stream that ran through the valley. And what this Chinese farmer had to do was he had to get out every morning and use a hand pump and pump all the water that he could out of the stream up to his fields at the top. Now there was plenty of water for everybody to go around, but it was very difficult for him because they were poor and all he, had to, he had to do it all by hand. It had to be a hand pump. So all this water being pumped up the hillside to his on the top. Everybody else could pump their own up as well, but he had to go the furthest. And he came out one morning only to discover that his neighbor just below him had put a hole in the wall, the retaining wall, and drained all of the water out of his field to fill his own field. Now at first, he just, the farmer ignored that. 
And the next morning he came out and he pumped all the water up again, filled his fields, only to discover that his neighbor once again put a hole in the retaining wall and drained all the water out of his field into his two fields below. And this went on two or three times. Now, the farmer at the top happened to be a Christian. That's why Watchman Nee was telling the story. And so he went to the house church where he was worshiping, and he said, what do I do about this? I I don't know what to do. And somebody said, well, you know, the right thing to do is to confront him. But one of the other believers in the group said, well, you know, as Christians, the only thing we do is what is right. We're not really good Christians, are we? Our calling is to do what Jesus did, which is more than what is right. And that made an impression on this farmer. And so the next morning, you know what he did? He went out and he pumped the water out of the stream into his neighbor's fields first and filled them up. And then he went and he filled his own fields. And guess what? The problem stopped. Well, you think, well, of course the problem stopped. But here's what's amazing. He did this continually until eventually the farmer below began to take notice of it and came to him and apologized and asked him why he had done it. And he was then able to share with his neighbor the gospel of Jesus Christ and that neighbor became a believer. Now, that is humility. That's not what we're trained to do. We're trained to stand on our what? On our rights. By golly, it's not right that he should drain my fields. It's fine for him to take some water, but he can't take my water. And yet that's what it means to be humble. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ did? Though he was a nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. On the night of the Last Supper, what did he do? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he got down on his hands and his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. And then once he had taken a towel and dried their feet, he said this, Have this mind among yourselves. He said, As I have served you, so you should serve one another. Paul summed it up beautifully. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus said, If you want to be one of my followers, you've got to take up your cross. That was an invitation to come and die to self, you see means I give up my rights. I know I have rights, but I'm giving them up for the sake of others. Jesus first, others second, and myself, well, I'll put myself last. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a little Christ. It is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And what happens when people begin to do that? I'm not telling you it's easy. This Christian life is not easy. What I am telling you is it's worth it. But this is part of what it means to live a life 
worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been called to be what? A Christ one. Paul is praying for all of those things that you might have the strength, the wherewithal, the ability to live a Christ-like life. Because when you do that, you are sent off on mission. And when you are sent off on that kind of a mission, what you do is you pluck people who are brands from the burning. You take those who are perishing and you save them. You bring those who are living in darkness into the marvelous light of God's grace and love. When we come back next week, we'll take a look at some of these other characteristics of the Christ-like life. Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Oh, that's a good one, bearing with one another. Why is that a good one? Because it's not just talking about those who are unbelievers. Sometimes it's easier to bear with unbelievers than it is to bear with believers. Today's All Saints Day. There's a wonderful old poem that says, To love the saints above, oh, that indeed will be glory. But to love the saints below, well, that's another story. <laughs> what it means to bear with one another in love. And we'll see what it means to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray.